Welcome to FO Podcasts. With me is Glenn Ojeda Vida. He is a longtime author for Fair Observer. He is an expert on Latin America. And today we'll be speaking about Venezuela. Now, apparently on December 3rd or 3rd of December, Venezuela had a referendum. So, Glenn, uh, what were the five questions posed in this referendum? Atul, thank you and thank the Fair Observer for inviting me. As you said, on the 3rd of December, the Venezuelan regime invited the Venezuelan people to participate in a referendum that had five questions, five, I would say, leading questions. Oh, well, all referenda are leading. <laughs> it's almost like, yes, uh, Prime Minister and Sir Humphrey are making up those questions. Are you against the idea of young people running in arms? Are you against the idea of young people forced against their will to die for their country? Are you against military service? And everyone says, yes. yes. And, and, and an opposite set of questions produces the opposite response. So, so I guess all questions are leading questions. Exactly. And, and in the case of the Venezuelan referendum, all five questions received yes responses, according to the official sources, by more than 95%. But the first question, Atul, to your point, is a historical uh, throwback. And the Venezuelan regime asked the Venezuelan people, do you repudiate and do you support our government repudiating the 1899 decision by a Paris tribunal that deprives Venezuela of the sovereignty of the Guiana Essequibo territory, which is the territory in question here. Okay. So, uh, basically, Venezuela is claiming a slice, two-thirds, apparently, of Guyana. Yes, and that, that's... The big... neighboring former British colony. Correct. Full of Indians. Full, full of Indians and... Uh, the the that were brought over to work the um, the sugar fields plantations. the sugar plantations the fields of Guyana. My last visit to Georgetown and it was my first visit to Georgetown two years ago. It was a very eye opening uh, visit because I got to see a part of South America that not many people see or even relate to South America. Full of Hindu temples, <laughs> full of synagogues and mosques. Even not mm. your typical. Catholic Church of the Spanish uh, 16th century. No, oh, if only the British had colonized South America, you guys would have had much better times. <laughs> so Israel and Palestine can attest to that. That's, that, that's <laughs> right. That's right. So um, l let me go back to this 1899 tribunal in Paris, which was an ad hoc tribunal summoned at the time by Venezuela but Venezuela was not its own representative. Rather, it was represented by U.S. delegates that had their proxy. At the time, Guyana was represented by its colonial masters, the British Empire. And this tribunal in 1899 drew a line very close to the modern border between uh, Guyana and Venezuela. But since then, Basically, right after that decision came out, the Venezuelan government for 124 years now has denounced that arbitrary line, saying that the 1899 Paris Tribunal had it in for Venezuela, that the fix was in, that the U.S. representatives of 
Venezuela at this tribunal had a buddy-buddy relationship with the British and therefore agreed to a border that was more generous to British Guiana and today's Guiana than to Venezuela. Um, the Venezuelans have historically reivindicated all the way to the Essequibo River, which is right where Georgetown is. So as you said, two thirds of Guyana's territory as their natural border from the Spanish colonial times. I see. So they see themselves as dished up by the evil Anglo-Saxons. Correct. And to an extent, they were supported by some historical record. There was uh, one of the negotiators on behalf of Venezuela, a U.S. jurist and diplomat, um, who wrote memoirs and published some testimony uh, in the subsequent years, early 20th century, all the way to the 1940s. He published testimony where he said that there were undue pressures from the U.S. and from Britain to be more generous at that 1899 tribunal with the former British colony. And the Venezuelan government, even before the Maduro and Chavez regimes, has held on to that, uh, to denounce the current borders. They did it throughout the 1920s and 30s and 40s until they got in 1966, on the eve of the British Empire granting independence to Guyana, they got the 1966 Geneva Agreement, which was an agreement to agree on a border later on. So the Geneva Agreement between Venezuela and uh, the British Empire about to give Guyana its independence says that both countries, Guyana and Venezuela, will at a later date agree on a border. And that leads us to the second question of the referendum, which on the third, on Sunday the third was, do you Venezuelan citizen agree that the 1966 agreement empowers us to seek a, a resolution and empowers our historical claim from Venezuela on the Essequibo territory? And again, there was a question that per the official government sources was overwhelmingly yes, 95 plus percent. All right. So number one, people reject the 1899 tribunal, and number two... Embrace. The embrace... Of the Geneva Accord The Geneva Accord of 1966, says, saying that we can get a new agreement. We so, can get a new agreement. All right, we are done with first two questions. What's the third? So the third question, uh, I, I don't want to get them mixed up, so let me com confirm here. Uh, the third question leads us into another element of, of the complexity here, which is rejecting the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. ICJ. ICJ. The third question says, because the Geneva Agreement says that this will be uh, sorted out between Venezuela and Guyana, ICJ has no jurisdiction here. So the regime in Venezuela and Caracas is looking to basically exclude the international community from this. It's a bilateral matter. Venezuela has... Uh... 50% of the same. Exactly. Yes. We're not going to be dictated from exactly. Europe. And they what are we going have to, to put a gun to Guyana's head and say, now we have two thirds of your house in. Thank yes. you very much. Thank you very much. And, and that leads us to another interesting point, which is Venezuela, even though it is a country that has been hit by sanctions, isolation, economic uh, 
uh, ruin over the last 10, 20 years. It has a strong military, particularly when it's compared to Guyana's military. All right, we, we'll get to that later. Let's get to question four and question five, please. Yeah, so the fourth question, do you agree to oppose any pretension on the part of Guyana to solve this issue militarily? Okay, so do you agree basically to solve this issue militarily? That is the... the it, it's a, the, the question seeks specifically to... Uh, it, it points out specifically the maritime issue because with, with Guyana and, and with Venezuela's claim over the Esequibo, there is not just a claim to land, there's also a claim to territorial seas, waters. Of course. Yeah. And these waters are oil-rich, uh, as has been recently discovered. So the Venezuelan government with this fourth also leading question is wanting to gain uh, the waters, the, the territorial waters. Get the oil. Get the oil, yes. And they, they, they are asking permission to use military to do so. Yes. Okay, and so then, what's number five? And then the, the, the fifth question is uh, basically a de facto changing of the ground game. Do you agree for, do you agree or support the Venezuelan government in the creation of a new state, declaring a new state called the Guyana Esequibo State, and that state granting IDs, citizenship to all its inhabitants and making a census? So Venezuela is taking a page, we would say, out of Netanyahu's playbook and saying, we're going to colonize. We're going to start issuing IDs, making presence, conducting a census, and establishing a new jurisdiction within this territory. All right. So there's a new state now of Guyana Esequibo. Guyana Esequibo. It was declared and earlier this week. Exactly. And General Rodriguez Ceballo mm -hmm. is, the is the governor. Yes, a uh, and provisional military governor. Is the provisional military governor. And he has already issued, or President Nicola, Ma Nicola Maduro's government has already issued Petróleos de Venezuela, PDVSA, PDVSA, licenses for gas, oil, and mines, yep. as well as social care for the inhabitants of um, Guyana, Esequibo. That, that's correct. So one of the first acts after this uh, referendum or so-called referendum on Sunday, as early as Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, the Venezuelan government lost no time. Mm. Maduro held an extraordinary government cabinet meeting. All the cameras were there. He was, was in his white t-shirt, wasn't he? No, white tracksuit, wasn't he? <laughs> traditional uh, Guayabera long sleeve, as, as it would be called in, in the region. He, he had a big show. All the party members were there. And he says, the Venezuelan government has a mandate. It is a binding mandate. We are creating this new jurisdiction. We are issuing a new map. It's going to be put on all the schools and all the government buildings. We're going to issue IDs to all the residents of this new territory. And most importantly, to your point, Atul, the state-run oil and mining companies, they have a carte blanche now. They should go ahead and start exploring, start developing infrastructure, start exploiting the resources of this new Venezuelan territory. Now, quick question. He claims, Maduro claims he has a mandate, and he claims that 95% of Venezuelans voted. He claims as many as 10.4 million 
people voted. But foreign observers comment that there were no queues and uh, there didn't seem to be much enthusiasm for uh, the referendum. So is this basically hocus pocus? Are all these numbers cooked up? Very much uh, could be or likely is. Uh, we haven't really had in almost 10 years, 15 years now, uh, reliable government uh, numbers on any type of electoral event. We haven't had foreign observers, third parties. So then the numbers are cooked up. And if, if you think about just, it... Just, yes. just for our listeners... In 2018, Nicolas Maduro, or Nicola Maduro, I don't know his exact pronunciation. Nicolas, Nicolas, Nicolas Maduro. Maduro uh, he won the election, and that was certainly not a free and fair election. And 9.4 million people voted as per official records. Now, this time, apparently, even the, more people even voted. More people voted. On a and referendum for something that is really peripheral. I mean, exactly. And to... 7 million people have left Venezuela as refugees. Yeah. So if you do the simple arithmetic, the numbers simply don't add up. Yeah. And it's certainly been a few years since I last visited uh, either Guyana or Venezuela. I wasn't there on December 3rd, but I do follow very closely uh, on, ground, on the ground sources. And what you were saying, Atul, from my contacts in the region, in the country, this, the queues were empty, but it's it's not even hard to imagine. If you're asking someone from the other end of Venezuela, someone who hasn't eaten three meals a day in over a year probably, who's worried about when am I going to have to leave the country, uh, what am I going to do for my family's safety and security, you ask them, do you want to annex this jungle at the other side of the, 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 the There is no real impact in the life of everyday Venezuelans. This is truly a political statement that Venezuela is trying to do, trying to present itself as a uh, even more anti-Western, another spoiler in the, in the conflicts that we've seen recently. Uh, I see it very similar to Putin's move in Crimea, where he started issuing citizenship to Crimeans, right? So Maduro is going to do the same, start issuing Venezuelan passports in Esequibo and uh, starting to do infrastructure projects so, but there's a difference. Russia is still a powerful country. Russia can produce shells. Russia has a military industry. Russia um, has military technology. Uh, if we look at the numbers, in 2021, um, the GDP of Venezuela was one fourth of what it was in 2014. The GDP of Venezuela has imploded. G Venezuela's debt is estimated to be $150 billion. Um, Venezuela is going through hyperinflation in 2022. The inflation rate was 234%. Right now, it may be a little lesser because oil prices are booming. Uh, poverty had risen to 65% last year. It dropped to 50%. Uh, but as I said, 7 million Venezuelans have fled. Uh, most can't feed their children. Uh, there are no jobs. There's been economic collapse. Um, there's been um, a, a drastic decline in production in, of oil. And uh, there isn't any money for investment in PD, PDVSA. PDVSA. Yeah. So there's Syria under investment. So Venezuela can't even 
basically pump out its own oil. So Venezuela is not Russia. It's fundamentally uh, a decrepit, failing, bankrupt state. Well, that, that is so accurate, that all. And it was also suffering from sanctions uh, from the US, although recently they got a bit of a relief because yes. uh, there was the October, and you know it better than me, there was this October deal that they would have uh, elections in 2024. Year, yes. They have some agreement with the opposition. Uh, now, of course, there's a, a new opposition leader. Um, she uh, is Maria Corina Machado. Exactly, she's at the moment prohibited from from, from running. From she's, running, uh, but the agreement is that they would allow her to run. So, but Venezuela is as of now a basket case. You 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 hit it on the head when you point out that Venezuela's economy is uh, severely weakened. But we have to think of. What is the one institution that is still strong in Venezuela? What is the one institution that the Chavez regime has depended on? It is the military. Chavez himself was a soldier. Maduro has depended. So, so, so just I'll stop you there. A lot of our listeners in India, in Turkey, in Kenya, in Nigeria don't even know about Chavez. So you are the Latin America scholar, you're the Latin America expert. Before you wax lyrical about Chavez, explain to them the history of this regime and how things have come to a pass today, yes, to so, this pass today. So the, the, the Chavez movement, the Chavista movement, as it's called in Spanish and then locally in Latin America, is a movement that was started in the late 90s by this uh, young officer, uh, Captain was the rank of Hugo Chavez, uh, uh, or no, Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, and he grew to become a, a social leader, uh, what he called uh, 21st century socialism. The Chavez revolution also calls, him, calls itself the, the last revolution of the previous century because they came, came to power technically in 1998, 1999, and they've been in power ever since. Uh, now, Chavez himself died in 2013, and a lot of people, uh, including including myself, thought that his successors would be short-lived because no one really has the charisma that Chavez himself had. But the last 10 years have been uh, proof of how ingrained the Chavista movement and, and the Chavista mafia really has become in Venezuela. Dependent... They sound like Hamas. <laughs> to, to an extent. And they depend largely on the Venezuelan military uh, because Chavez came from the military, because Diosdado Cabello, who is the uh, party vice president and really the man behind Maduro, is uh, also a captain himself. Uh, Maduro not being a military figure, but really someone who is uh, who owes his position to the generals. Um, he, he knows that the Venezuelan military is the one institution keeping him afloat. And the Venezuelan military is known for El Cartel de los Soles, known as the Sons Cartel, S-U-N-S, -S, no, S not S-O-N-S. Uh, that is a, a cartel that smuggles large amounts of drug out of... Out of uh, Basically cocaine. Cocaine out of Venezuela and Latin And so America. this cocaine trade uh, funds the military. Funds the military, uh, makes the military leaders rich, but also allows uh, Venezuela to purchase weapons from its friends in Iran, in Russia, and... China as well. China. They are, they are uh, if anything, 
ready to fight a small army like Guyana. And they are banking on the fact that the world is so tired of wars that no one will come to help Guyana because half the people in the world can't even place it on the map. So they are banking on the fact that the world is tired of conflict. Um, Joe Biden hasn't taken a tough stand against them and is distracted right now with Israel-Palestine, Israel-Gaza rather, and of course Ukraine. And so they can just roll in and swallow two thirds of Guyana's territory. Especially because it's a jungle where it's mineral rich and oil rich, but there's very few people there. Uh, This won't be a a, a conflict that will have lots of social media presence like uh, Ukraine or like Gaza. So the, the real question for me is, will the United Kingdom come to help its former colony? Will maybe a country like India come to help uh, its fellow uh, Indians, Indians, non-resident or, Indians, NRIs, or will the Exxon Mobil lobbyist be powerful enough to to muster some support for Guyana in the international stage? Because or rather, America in Washington, because all all Washington needs to do is send an aircraft carrier over. Yes, and and the Exxon Mobil, which is the company that would be exploiting most of these newly found oil fields, they stand to benefit from the Well, they could hire their own mercenaries. <laughs> they could. I'm they sure could. They I mean, uh, after But they all, are the ones to benefit if, yeah, if the all territory stays exactly. with Guyana, obviously. There were private military companies in In, in the Iraq. other days, in Latin America too. I yeah, mean, so. if you think of the United Fruit Company and uh, Guatemala, the, many of these private companies uh, in Colombia, in Central America, they were extremely powerful. Obviously. India was conquered by the British East India the Company. company yes. So so there's precedent for that. So maybe maybe all is not lost. Uh, ExxonMobil will have mercenaries or perhaps other countries such as the US, the UK, uh, India may step in. But more importantly and more practically, what will Brazil do? Because uh, the Brazilian president who is socialist Lula da or, Silva, a friend of the Caracas regime. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I think um, I wrote down his full name and it goes on forever. Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. Ooh, yes, <laughs> yeah. Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. And he said that Latin America doesn't need war at the moment. He was really upset at this idea that yes. there may be war. So if Lula is upset and the Brazilian military, of course, they are is, the most is more powerful. to the right, yes. And doesn't like the Venezuelan regime. Surely Lula could unleash that military against Venezuela. Especially Lula of 2023 has to tread carefully. Lula of 10 years ago, when he was first in power, uh, was much closer to Chavez and was much more unleashed to the left. But yeah, and at that, that time, Castro that time, was alive and Cuba was sending doctors to, to both Brazil and Venezuela. Venezuela. Venezuela was sending cheap oil to Cuba and Brazil. Argentina was ruined, uh, governed by the left and it was a different time. Uh, Lula now faces, as you well point out, a, tool, uh, a Brazilian military that is uh, uneasy, that was fired up by Bolsonaro's years that is ready to stage a coup if they are pushed too far. So Lula wants to tread carefully, even though Lula's natural sympathies are with uh, the likes of Caracas and, and I don't Havana. think he sympathizes with military invasion, though. He's not, uh, 
he's not a military man, Lula. No, he's a that, trade unionist. That, that, that is accurate. That is accurate. But Lula also needs his allies in the region. And Venezuela has traditionally been an ally. I think Lula at this stage is trying to not rock the boat. And he sees this as rocking the boat just a tad too much. Got it. Because if Venezuela invades Guyana, the Brazilian military may just put extraordinary pressure to uh, upon uh, the government to act or could even mount act a itself. coup. Oh, yes. yes it could certainly. even mount a coup. Yes, certainly. So that, that's a concern for Venezuela. And that's why... For, I, no, for Lula. For, and for Venezuela. And for Venezuela, as well, as well. exactly. Yes, because yeah. losing its most important uh, ally in the region at this point, other than Havana, but Havana is powerless, um, would be a big blow for the Maduro regime. Now, this goes to one of my thesis with this uh, charade by the Venezuelan government, which is they will push the envelope, but they know their limits. The Venezuelan government, as you well point out, is facing a tough election next year against a candidate that while she, I'm not sure if she has what it takes to win against Maduro, she will certainly do a, a good campaign and, and she poses a formidable threat so Maria Corina Machado, Machado. she she won uh, apparently um, the primary election for the by a huge by mandate. A huge market, so yeah. so the old chap who was recognized, Guaido, yeah, yeah, Juan, he's, well, he's, he's gone, he's gone, he's out and of the she's picture. the new leader. So tell us a bit about this lady. So she she's a traditional uh, figure that has been around in the opposition. It is important to point out that the opposition in Venezuela has unfortunately been plagued by internal fighting and misorganization. So what's new? It's Latin America. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so one, of, one of the biggest blessings truly for the Maduro regime is that the opposition has been so cannibalistic. Yeah. Um, there is no Millet figure. There is, th there is no unitary figure. Uh, Maria Corina Machado has achieved that unification to an extent, but the regime in Caracas insists that she is not able to present herself because she has, in, in the regime's eyes, uh, criminal precedents because she opposed certain actions that the, that the government took and she called for sanctions on the regime, which the regime sees, that sees as treason. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have used that as a tool to disqualify a lot of potential uh, political enemies. Now, the question is, will Maria Corina Machado be on the ballot herself or will there be a proxy of her? Um, and I think the Venezuelan government now is keeping this powder of the Esequibo somewhat dry. It's taking concrete action, certainly, as we were just discussing, but it's keeping this threat of military invasion in its back pocket. It might use it as an excuse to delay the election, to cancel it, to disqualify opposition candidates, or just to rally the people to it. So one thing that um, my team was discussing and one thing that sticks in my mind is that on the one hand, Nicolas Maduro and his regime have been trying to play nice with the US. So they've been negotiating, they've come to an agreement in Barbados, which is a nice place, I suppose, to negotiate. Yeah, there, um, were, there are worse places to negotiate. Exactly. But they've negotiated everywhere. I mean, they've been in the yeah. Dominican Republic, Mexico, Barbados. Oh, jolly good. This is, this is good <laughs> local tourism. That's right. Uh, but also, perhaps far more importantly, in 2022, they allowed Chevron to um, 
re-begin uh, operations in the country. So yeah. Chevron has resumed operations. So they are trying to make nice. And yet now suddenly they go and say, we'll take two thirds of the country, which they know for sure certainly go to, goes down very well. So in a way they are, they are trying two opposite strategies. Yes. Not both of them are likely to work. No, I, I see it as uh, the Venezuelan government trying to manage carrot and stick, trying to manage, uh, do we play, continue to play spoiler to the West or do we play nice? And they, they haven't quite found the right formula yet, so they're moving from one side to the other. Interesting that you point out the Chevron element because Venezuela for many years, for many decades, all the way to the 90s and, and early 2000s, Venezuela had the best oil engineers, uh, miners, uh, very technical, high-level people in all of South America. And, and there they, has been they, a brain They all fled. They all fled. They're all working for foreign corporations now. I know because... They some work of, in Colombia, in exactly. Miami. They work in Brazil. And one of the reasons why Venezuela allowed Chevron to go back is because they needed the talent and the know-how that Chevron would bring back into the country. And our listeners must know that Venezuela still has the world's largest oil reserves. Yes. Venezuela. But it doesn't have the technical know-how today. Exactly. To or pump the it money. Out. Or, or the, the money. money. To pump it out. Or the so, investment or the, or the human capital. Exactly. It had it and it lost it. So how... Yeah. What good is it to you? You have the largest oil reserves in the world, but you can't pump it out. Hmm. So you're sitting on a pile of gold, but you can't you can't take it out of the ground. And and they've had a boom and bust economic cycle since the 1920s, and especially for the last 10 years, um, in particular, they've have a they've had a tremendous bust. Yes, and and it's important to remember as well. Venezuela has mortgaged decades of oil to Chinese and, and foreign interests, particularly Chinese investment. They have mortgaged their oil output in some of their fields for 10, 20 years to pay back debt that they've taken uh, from particularly Chinese creditors. So that brings me on to very neatly on to the next question. Uh, why can't they solve the problem by inviting Chinese oil companies? The underinvestment would go. That, that, that's a good question. Uh, honestly, I don't have a, a, a good answer for it. Are the Chinese scared I, of the U.S.? Yes, uh, to an extent. The, because the Monroe Doctrine still applies. This will an be extent, America's backyard. The, correct. To an extent, while China has been very aggressive going into Africa and other parts of the world, it has been strategic and stealthy in Latin America. It is present. It is very much present. Well, Latin. it's the largest trading partner for Argentina, for, for Uruguay, for, for Brazil, Brazil, for Chile. For Chile, yes. And for Venezuela, it's a very important trading partner. But an outright assault on Venezuela's hydrocarbons industry has not yet occurred. Uh, it, it is very likely due to that respect or, or shyness around the Monroe Doctrine and not wanting to break what has traditionally been seen as uh, the backyard of the United States before Chavez came to power. The, the most important ally that the U.S. had in the region was uh, one of the most important was sternly Caracas. Mm. And that obviously has changed. That has changed. 
but still it but hasn't changed enough of, for, for Nicolas Maduro to be basically hand in glove with, with Xi Jinping. In fact, uh, our video for FO Exclusive, which Glenn Carl, the retired CIA officer Glenn Carl, different to Glenn Ojeda Vida, so the other Glenn, title was Emperor Xi Jinping turns lover boy in San Francisco, which raised a few eyebrows. And maybe now because um, China is trying to play nice with the US, China is basically in an economic crisis. Um, Venezuela can't look to China anymore. That, that's correct. And Venezuela has uh, obviously relied over the last 10, 15 years on allies like China. But Venezuela is also very close to Iran, very close to Russia. Uh, but Iran doesn't have that much money and Russia is in, is involved in, in a war. Shambles. That, yeah. That's correct. But these are strategic relationships for Caracas, uh, the military relationship with Venezuela, uh, uh, between Venezuela and Russia, the military exchanges that we've seen over the last 10, 20 years, Russian planes, Russian ships coming to Venezuela. Uh, one of the few flights that you can take from Tehran is the Caracas-Tehran uh, weekly or daily flight that there is. So there, there is that influence. Who travels on that flight? I would be I would very love, curious I would love to, to take that plane one day. I don't think I ever will, but yes, there is a daily or weekly uh, So what Caracas do the Iranians send? Do they send pistachios? Nah, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they send pistachios. What do the Venezuelans send? Cocaine? <laughs> it could, could well be, but I think they're sending other for, stuff. Cocaine for the mullah's grandchildren. Yes, they're they're exchanging weapons, they're exchanging oil, they're exchanging intelligence. Most importantly, remember that Hezbollah is certainly present in the Middle East, but Hezbollah has a big presence in Latin America, including in Venezuela, including in Argentina, including in Colombia, and several other. What countries. are they doing in Latin America? Hezbollah. Hezbollah in Latin America has traditionally used it as a training ground. I see. Has traditionally used it as a ground to target Jewish communities, not so much recently, but back in the 80s and 90s, those of yeah. you who follow Argentina, yes, at was that the time. AMIA mm. uh, attack against a mosque in the Jewish uh, community center. So Hezbollah has traditionally had a very strong presence in Latin America, and that center of gravity has moved recently from Argentina to Venezuela because of the uh, rapprochement between Tehran and Caracas. Okay, but still, it is difficult to imagine a Shia terrorist organization or militia uh, having much leeway in traditionally Catholic, although, of course, evangelicals are rising in number. And if they rise in number, then, of course, there'll be even less space for yes, but you know, I, I, we, a Shia militia. We shouldn't emphasize the religious element. Uh, we, we should focus on... Why not? The, the non religion is important. Religion is important, but in Latin America, uh, for criminal organizations in particular, pragmatism has trumped religiosity. If you, think so of, if you think of Pablo Escobar, who allied himself with ETA, the Spanish nationalist group, just to know how to do car bombs and mm. uh, same. So something. what is the quid pro quo? Um, what do the Venezuelans gain from this the dalliance with Iran? They gain an ally. They gain uh, coordination in OPEC votes. Okay. Uh, they gain uh, an ally in the region uh, of the Middle East where they have numerous allies, uh, including Syria, including other Gulf countries. 
You have to think that there is a big Lebanese diaspora in Venezuela. Former Venezuelan vi Vice President Tarek Al-Aissami is a dual citizen, either with Lebanon or Syria or both. So the, the relationship between the OPEC countries and Venezuela in that oil-producing cartel has always been important. I see. And so what do they gain from Venezuela? One ally, right? Iran doesn't count many allies. And I see. So just a pinprick in America's backyard. That's right. That's right. And, and that is valuable. I think people uh, tend to underestimate how much of uh, a sphere of influence the U.S. benefits from in the Western Hemisphere, how it makes us here in the U.S. safer, more comfortable. We're not close to the to the combat zones. You're not like India. With We're China, not like India. We're not like Israel. We're exactly. not like the Europeans, uh, Germany exactly. with and Poland that are, have borders with the war in Ukraine. We no, are no, Germany doesn't have borders, but Poland has. Po Poland does, yeah. yes. I mean, no, India has nuclear-armed China and nuclear-armed Pakistan. Pakistan. We are sandwiched in between. Yeah, and, and the U.S. is in a privileged position uh, with two huge trenches called the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And for the enemies of this uh, great country, any type of stone that they can throw into our shoe, like Venezuela, like Cuba, like Nicaragua, is something that they will seize. And so this uh, this stone in the shoe now is uh, rolling towards Guyana. It's and, rolling and, towards and, Guyana. And, and they have a military governor, but all of this is talk for now. Will they act? Um, I, I would say uh, for the next few weeks, they are going to test the waters. They are going to start... Uh, increasing the tone. Well, are they going to move the border posts, say, 100 meters to the, to the east? They've already started with symbolic gestures like uh, lowering Guyana's flag everywhere they can find it in Essequibo and putting up the Venezuelan flag, issuing these permits. We will see what type of presence... So to issue the permits, they'll have to send administrators over the, and soldiers over, perhaps. Yes, I imagine that one of the next things we'll see is... Uh, some of the few oil engineers that Venezuela has left are going to go into Essequibo with military escorts and start drilling. Drilling. So drill, baby, drill, like and, Sarah Palin. And and we will see what the international community and the Guyanese response is. Are they going to send a few guys with a pistol? Who knows? Mm. Uh, the Venezuelan. I found it very interesting that the Venezuelan Minister of Defense, Vladimir Padrino. Uh, oh, his name is his, Vladimir. His name is Vladimir. Oh, same name Vladimir, as Putin. Vladimir Padrino. Padrino means godfather. So Vladimir the godfather is his name. Lovely. And he... he Charming. He has been the Minister of Defense for quite a while. And he participated very actively, along with the entire Venezuelan army, on the referendum on December 3rd. He voted. And the Venezuelan army was the custodian of this referendum. Interestingly enough, not in its military uh, ceremony uniform, but in combat fatigues. Every Venezuelan soldier on December 3rd was wearing full combat fatigues, uh, supporting and providing logistical support to the voting centers. So very much an image of we are here ready to fight. The images were looped in uh, the evening news and the propaganda machine of the Caracas regime. So at least in terms of posturing, the Venezuelan government and the Venezuelan army seems ready to, to push the border, push the envelope, start moving into the jungle. 
once the bullets start flying, I think the dynamic might change. But for now, they will push until until they start to feel some resistance. Excellent. So it's salami slicing like the Chinese in South China Sea or on the Himalayan border with India. Yes, and I, I would I would ask Atul, we you just asked me uh, how far will they go? Mm. How far will the other side let them go? That is really the question. I don't think even Caracas knows the answer to. How far will we be able to go until the Guyanese or Exxon or the Brits or Washington starts pushing back? Or Brazil. Or Brazil. Most important, perhaps, because it is the biggest country in Latin America and it is next door. It is next door. I mean, Guyana Esequibo would be a border with Guyana and with Brazil. Yes. Brilliant. We've had a fantastic conversation. Uh, You're off to um, Europe, then you're off to South America. That's right. And when you're back from Chile and Argentina, we will have you back on FO Podcast to discuss both Chile and Argentina. And I'll be passing by Brazil as well. So in January, we'll pick up the conversation. Exactly. Muchas gracias. Thank you, Atul. Gracias. Gracias.